Well, uh, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to worship with you this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here. Like Becca was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. Uh, I just want to encourage you as well. Uh, Come check out Vision Night. If you want to know what River City is all about, what God's up to, how to be a part of that in the coming year, I just want to invite you to that. It's a great place to, great place to get connected further and to understand more about what it looks like to join Jesus on mission through River City this coming year. So I want to invite you to that. Excited as well to uh, continue our series in the Gospel of John, but if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first week, let me just briefly catch you up before we dive into chapter 4 this morning. So from from the beginning, what we've seen as we've studied John's Gospel is that like the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, John's kind of like a documentary about Jesus. And what we've seen, however, is that John's documentary about Jesus is really different than all of the other three. It's, It's unique. He totally ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new, never-before-seen footage from Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, the chapter we're going to be in this morning in chapter 4 is one of those. It's a story, it's an account that's only found in John. And the reason for all those differences we've seen has a lot to do with the, the timing and the audience that John's writing. He's writing his gospel documentary about 20 or 30 years after the other had, others had been written. And he's writing it to an audience that would have certainly had access to and been familiar with the other gospel writers' accounts of Jesus' life. In fact, it's, it's likely that a, a significant portion of John's audience, his original audience, would have been second or third generation Christians. People who had grown up, whose parents or grand parents were some of the first people to come to faith in Jesus. And so they'd grown up hearing the stories about him and becoming familiar with the gospel writer's accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And the problem that we see throughout the gospel, though, is that it seems as though John's readers had become too familiar with Jesus. It was just another informational thing for them. Instead of of just making another documentary about what Jesus said and did, the focus of John's documentary on Jesus is on who he really is. And what he's trying to do throughout the whole gospel is to wake people up from this kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus to this spectacular, eternity-altering reality of who Jesus said he was and proved himself to be. And See, what John wants is for, uh, he wants to transform this insufficient, unsaving, kind of head-level, mere head-level knowledge about Jesus. He wants that to become a true, genuine, heart-level belief in Jesus that actually transforms people's lives, both for now and for eternity. And so we study chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we're going to actually read a story about someone who comes to have that kind of faith, that kind of genuine, life-transforming belief in Jesus. And it's a passage you might be familiar with, many of you might be familiar with. It's the kind of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And as we take a look at this kind of biblical equivalent of a water cooler conversation, right? Uh, what I want to show you, what we're going to see is Jesus is crossing all kinds of social, political, religious, cultural barriers so that people might not only find in him the things that their soul is really thirsting for, but that they might also have the joy of sharing him the ultimate thirst quencher with others. They might find him and share him with others. Such an encouraging and beautiful passage this morning. So much here. Can't wait to show it to you. So let's pray and we'll dive in. God, thanks so much for you and for your word and thanks uh, so much that uh, you led John to include this story in his gospel account of your life and, and work, Jesus. And 
We pray this morning as we come to study it, as we see uh, in it who you are, Jesus, and all that you came to do. God, we pray that you might captivate us again with a, a glimpse of your glory and your goodness and your power and your, and, and your love. We pray that you might cause us to not just know more about you, but love you more fully and worship you more wholeheartedly, Jesus. We, we need you to do that in us. We can't do it in ourselves. We can't just, uh, I can't do that in people with some great sermon or whatever. Uh, we need your spirit to shape us and change our hearts. And so we ask humbly, would you do that, God, this morning? Uh, for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be uh, this morning in John chapter 4. Verses 1 through 42. Buckle up. It's a long one, okay? Begins this way. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Again, that's John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. <clears throat> 
Don't you have a saying? It's four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and a harvest of crops for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, and others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Man, such a cool passage. Can't wait to dive into that a little bit more with you. The chapter 4 we just read, it opens in Jesus and his disciples right there traveling back from the Judean countryside back to Galilee. And on their way they make a pit stop right in the city of Sychar, which is an area, an area known as Samaria. And while the disciples kind of head into town to get supplies, Jesus kind of camps out at this well on the outskirts of town. And, and he meets this woman who's come there to draw water, and he engages her in this kind of conversation that not only transforms, completely changes the trajectory of her life, but the lives of a bunch of her neighbors as well. And, and the topic that's at the center of this life-changing conversation Jesus has with her is the topic of thirst, right? He's thirsty for a drink of water, so he asks her if he'll, she'll help him get a drink from the well, right? And to you and I, that seems like just totally normal, right? There's nothing weird about that, right? It'd be like if you went through the break room at work and you asked a coworker, hey, can you hand me a glass from that cabinet over there? Like, help a brother out, right? Um, and yet this woman is utterly shocked that Jesus is even talking to her, let alone that he's asking to use her water jar to get a drink. Because what she understands very clearly, and what John explains for us at the end of verse 9, is that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. In fact, most Jews despise Samaritans. About a thousand years before this, after King Solomon's death, there was a civil war that had divided the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And when the northern kingdom and its capital of Samaria were eventually defeated in the 700s BC by the Assyrians, the, the Assyrians deported a bunch of the Israelites back to Assyria, and they sent a bunch of Assyrians back to Samaria, and they kind of traded spots with a bunch of them in order to kind of set up a new culture. And over time, the remaining Israelites, they intermarried with these pagan people and they began to adopt many of their worship practices. And, and so the result was that for the Israelites who had stayed in the land, they looked at Samaritans and kind of viewed them as kind of ethnic and religious half-breeds, right? They had been defiled by Gentile blood and, they had, and pagan worship practices. And so they were kind of the epitome of what it meant to be spiritually unclean. And they were people you just did not associate with. On top of that centuries-old cultural and political and religious animosity that separated this woman and Jesus, there's also the matter of their genders, right? Jewish men, especially religious teachers, did not, just, did not make a habit of just talking in public with women, and Jewish teachers would never have even considered aiming anything but an insult at a Samaritan woman. If all that weren't enough, it's clear by the fact that this woman is drawing water at noon, the hottest part of the day, that she's an outcast even amongst her own society, right? You don't, you don't draw water at the hottest part of the day unless you're trying to avoid everyone. And yet in a culture where Jesus would have been judged harshly for even being seen with her, Jesus doesn't hesitate for a moment to enter into this 
deep, significant, real conversation with, with this woman. In fact, by the end of the story, it becomes pretty clear that the, this conversation is the whole reason John tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. Right? Spoiler alert, Jesus did not actually have to go through Samaria. There's all kinds of ways to get to Galilee from Judea. Right? It's not just like there's one road. See, the reality was is that most Jews, they despised everything about Samaritans, and they went literally out of their way to avoid having any contact with them. And yet that's not what Jesus does. See, Jesus is, defo- is not following a cultural GPS. He's following his father's divine GPS, and it leads him straight into the path of this woman who needed to see and to believe that he was the thing she had been thirsting for all of her life. You see, where people look at one another and see categories and dividing lines of of race and gender, ethnicity and politics and social status and all the rest, Jesus looks and sees people who are all thirsty for the same thing. They're thirsting for living water, and he's the only one who can give it to them. See, verse 10, he responds to her this way. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, then you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks the water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is trying to help this woman see is that she is thirsty in a way that she is not even aware of, in a way that she doesn't understand yet. She's come to this well to get water to quench her physical thirst and yet Jesus has come to this well in order to offer her the kind of water that can quench the deeper spiritual thirst that are controlling and ruling her life. But just like Nicodemus didn't understand who Jesus was and what he was talking about with being born again, this woman doesn't understand who Jesus is or what he's talking about with this living water stuff, right? Verse 15, she responds, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water, right? She's like, listen, man, drawing water sucks, right? Like, this is lame. Like, I am out. Like, if I can get around this, like, that would be so great, right? Like, if we did not have to do the whole carrying water to the thing and I didn't have to do the whole thing where I do it at noon because I'm trying to avoid everybody because, like, I don't want people to, like, like it's just not good. Like, that would be awesome if we could just avoid the whole thing, right? She's having this conversation on a physical level with Jesus. And Jesus is trying to help her have a spiritual conversation, right? And so he presses in with her another step further in verses 16 through 18, right? He tells her, go call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband, she says. Jesus responds, "You're, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband, and what, and what you have just said is just quite true, right? Now, it can be really easy to read those verses and just be like, ow, Jesus, like, I mean, that, like, burn, sick burn, but, like, that seems a bit harsh, right? Like, we were just having this really nice conversation about water and life, and, and we just, like, jackknife straight into, like, dumping all this lady's, like, relational baggage out on the table. It's like, that's going to be super fun, isn't it, right? Like, let's just, everyone loves talking about their relational baggage. Like, that's the greatest thing ever, right? But I need you to see, Jesus isn't being mean to this woman. He's not trying to shame her. He is not trying to, he's not trying to belittle her. You see, in a culture where he would have been judged for even being around her, he enters into this conversation with her as his equal. 
And he's not trying to embarrass her. He's having this conversation privately with her. Nobody else is around. He's not trying to just like out her in front of people. He wants her to wrestle with the reality of her own story. But you need to see too, he's not actually changing the subject. It feels like he's kind of taking a hard right turn, but he's actually not changing the subject. You see, what he's trying to help her see is how thirsty she really is for the water he has to give her. And he's doing that by showing her the place in her life that she has been endlessly trying to quench her deeper spiritual thirst. He's showing her this place in her life that she's been looking for the life that he has to offer. The word life, it appears in John almost 40 times, three times in these couple of verses here with Jesus' interaction with her. And There's a very specific word that John always uses in the gospel when he's talking about life. In Greek, there's a number of different words for life. The most common one is the Greek word bios, and it refers to kind of physical life, existence, right? There's another word, again, that John uses almost exclusively, and it's the word zoe. It, it doesn't refer to physical life or existence. Zoe is about quality of life. It's about an abundant life, life to the full. It's about the kind of life you and I are all thinking about when we think about meaning and purpose and significance. It's about that fullness of life. The truth is, is that all of us are thirsty for that Zoe version of life. We're looking for meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and joy. And like this woman, we try to satisfy those thirsts by, with romantic relationships or sexual intimacy. We do it by having children or by gaining friends. We look for it in our jobs or our careers. We try to find it in our possessions or our stuff or all kinds of other things. We hunt for it in having power and influence others over other people or receiving approval and acceptance from them. We, we try to seek it in pleasure and in comfort and escaping stress and, and we look for it in trying to have control over all the variables of our lives. And the problem is, is that with all that stuff, what we are endlessly trying to do is we're trying to quench this Zoe kind of thirst that we have with bias kinds of water. We're looking for the Zoe kind of life, but we Look for it in things that can't give it to us, things that always leave us wanting. And so like this woman, we have to keep trying new versions over and over again. We have to twist it to try to make it be the thing we need it to be for us. See, what Jesus is telling this woman, what he's trying to help her to see, he's saying, listen, your life these five failed marriages, your current live-in boyfriend situation it reveals that you are desperately thirsty for something. But what you're thirsting for, Jesus wants her to see, is something that men can't ever give her. In fact, it's something there's nothing in this world can ever quench. See, she is thirsty for living water. And only he can give it to her. His famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And so I must take care never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. See what C.S. Lewis is saying and what Jesus is saying. He's trying to tell this woman, 
is that he's the only one who has the life she's after. He's the only one. He's the one thing that can quench her soul-level thirst. Don't miss this little detail that John includes to help us see that reality, right? She's been with six men, none of which could quench the thirst that is in her soul. And now she's in the presence of a seventh, one who offers to complete her, one who offers to fulfill her. You see, in the Bible, the number seven is always very significant. John especially loves the number seven. In the Bible, seven is always about wholeness, completion, fulfillment. It's the, it's the culmination of things. You see, unlike all the other men in her life, Jesus has the ability to complete and to make whole all the brokenness in her story because he is the only one who can quench her soul-level thirst. See, what she's been looking for in these six men can actually only be found in the seventh, in Jesus, who's the Son. Jesus wants her to see that. He longs for her to know it. And so in the midst of all her redirects, in the midst of all her uncomfortableness, Jesus keeps pressing in. Because he wants her to see that she, that he has the thing she's after. And she realizes there's something special about Jesus, right? He must be a prophet or something. I mean, what kind of stranger could just possibly know all this about here? But she's uncomfortable. Shocker, right? I can imagine if you, somebody just like dumps your like relational history baggage all over the table in front of you, you'd be like, let's, let's not talk about that anymore, right? Like, let's, let's change the subject. Something a little, something, and you know what? I don't even care what the next thing is as long as it's not this, right? And she does that, right? Verse 20, she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, right? She's trying to steer this conversation to any discussion but her past, right? Anything but that she wants to talk about. And so she brings up what would have been the single most controversial and contentious issue between Jews and Gentiles, right? Where you worship, right? We talked about that civil war that divided the nation of Israel, right? Well, the capital of the, of the former nation of Israel altogether was in the temple. were both in the city of Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom, right? They had to set up a new capital in Samaria and a new competing temple on Mount Gerizim, right? And it kind of was meant to replace Jerusalem as the place of center of worship and politics and all the things, right? So normally these words, they would have been fighting words, and yet I imagine Jesus is thinking to himself, finally. Finally, we're talking about spiritual things now. See, but instead of engaging this conversation, this controversial debate, what Jesus tells this woman is that true worshipers are not defined by where they worship, but on whom and how they worship. Right? They worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They worship from a divinely regenerated heart, not from a mountain. And yet there's one other thing I want to help you to see here. Verse 22, you just notice with me for a moment what Jesus tells her. And he says, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So here's what Jesus is telling her. All of us are worshipers. Whether you know what you're worshiping or not, all of us are worshipers. 
You see, this woman was blind to the reality that the reason why she had had five failed marriages and has moved on to a sixth man is because she is a worshiper. And instead of worshiping God, the one she was made to and meant to, she's instead of making him her highest priority and her greatest love, she has put something else in this place of ultimate importance in her life. And it's led her to just endlessly pursue all these failed relationships. See, what Jesus is trying to help her to see is that her relationship issues, her sin issues, are really worship issues. And that's the same is for true in us. That's why the very first commandment God gives his people is to worship him supremely and exclusively. Martin Luther famously said, right, if you get the first one, you'll get all the rest. See, worship is See, our sin is always a worship issue because you do what you love and what you worship controls your life. It's the thing that shapes your actions and attitudes and behaviors. What Jesus is trying to help this woman see is that you are a worshiper just like me, just like everyone. We're all worshipers and you don't even know it. But that's what's at the root of everything going on in your life. She responds to Jesus in verse 25. Right, she basically says, I'm not sure what to do with everything you're talking about. She says, but I know that the Messiah, the Christ, when, the, when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And now finally, the conversation has come to the place where Jesus always intended it to from the very beginning, right? Jesus declares to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the first time in the whole book that Jesus takes that title on himself. Others have alluded to it, but this is the very first time Jesus tells someone who he really is. And what you cannot miss is that he tells it to an outcast Samaritan woman who is living in the wreckage of her idolatrous life. And it is this beautiful picture of a God who is pursuing worshipers, not waiting for them to find him. See, Jesus tells her that the Father is seeking those who will worship him. In fact, he's come in the flesh to seek and to save those who are lost. She's not looking for him. She doesn't even know that she is thirsty for what he has to offer. And yet Jesus comes into the world and he crosses every imaginable barrier so that she might know him and find him. And it's by his grace that it all finally makes sense to her. Verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town, said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This whole conversation, it finally clicks in light of Jesus' revelation of himself to her. And she sees him rightly, as we talked about last week. When you understand who Jesus is, that's when you're able to understand who you are. And it all makes sense, right? She finally found the one thing that could quench the thirst that had been controlling her whole life, and she had to go tell people. When Pastor notes it this way, she says, she found the better water she didn't even know she was looking for. And now her original errand to go fetch some water has been superseded by a new one. The joy she found, she went and shared with others. See, that's the natural response when you see who Jesus is and all that he's done for you. See, at the beginning of the conversation, she was floored that this man was even talking to her. 
And by the end, she is floored not just by someone talking to her, by the fact that that person was the king and creator of the universe. The great Messiah, God himself, had come after her. See, but notice that in the story that the Samaritan woman isn't the only one who's sharing her joy. Jesus is trying to share her joy with his joy with others as well, right? The disciples, they come back from town and they're shocked to see Jesus talking with this woman, but they don't say anything about it. Instead, they're urging him, right? Would you, why don't you have some lunch, Jesus? Like, let's, whatever, let's just, whatever's going on here, let's not have this go on anymore, right? Like, let's talk about something else. Let's do something else. Like, let's just, like, let's, whatever's less awkward, let's do that. Lunch. Everyone loves lunch, right? Like, let's do that. Jesus responds to them in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? Well, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and a harvest a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. See, Jesus is not saying that like physical food is somehow a distraction from kingdom work. Like that's not a thing. Like everybody needs to eat. Like he's not. Con- he's not saying like, oh, well, you can either eat or you can do ministry. Right? You know, those are competing forces. Right? That's not what he's talking about. Instead, Jesus is saying that there is so much joy in being a part of the Father's redeeming work that he can't even think about food at the moment. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Have you ever had that happen, right? You're so excited about something, you just like forget to eat. Like you just like, there's something you're just excited about, some experience you're about to have, some kind of event you're going to. Like you just like, you get to the end of the day and you're like, I think I missed three meals today. You like, but in the moment, it's not like you were hungry. It's like you didn't even realize, like you didn't even realize you weren't hungry because there was something else that was just like consuming your attention See, what Jesus is saying is that the fulfillment of God's eternal promises are finally happening. And the disciples and Jesus, they have this front row seat to seeing all of God's eternal work starting to come true. This woman and her whole village are coming to a genuine saving faith in the Messiah. They are coming to see and believe who Jesus really is. And Jesus is telling his disciples, wake up! Look up! You are missing it! You're missing the life and you're missing the worship change. You are missing the joy. You're missing it with lunch. See, they were too busy thinking about lunch to see this woman drinking deeply from the well of living water that leads to eternal life. It's not like they were doing something wrong, right? Like, like eating lunch is not a sin, right? Like it's not a, not a big deal. It's that they were focused on the wrong thing. And in love for them, Jesus invites them to have the joy of seeing the transforming work of his Father in people's lives. He says, don't, don't, don't miss. Don't miss the joy there is in seeing the living water transform people. There is life there. Let me just tell you, there is nothing better in the whole world than getting to witness firsthand God's supernatural saving work in people's lives. By God's grace, I have had so many opportunities, whether over time or in moments, to see God at work in people's lives, and I would trade anything to be there with those people. There is life in seeing Jesus work in people's souls that you can't find somewhere else. There is joy there that you just don't get. 
I remember growing up, I thought that sharing your faith and having conversations with people that don't know Jesus yet, I thought that that was super great for anyone else to do besides me. And the reality is, is that there is more life in being on mission with Jesus than there is in a thousand worship songs. You want to find joy in Jesus? Share him with people. There is more life there than you could possibly know. And what Jesus wants these disciples to see is that he wants them to have that joy. See, he is overflowing with joy, so much so that even though he's starving, he doesn't even think about food because he's seeing the transforming work of the Spirit of God make people alive forever. And he wants the disciples to have that too. See, in telling us this story, John is not only longing that people might have the joy of the Samaritan woman in finding in Jesus the thing that satisfies their souls, but that they might also find the joy of sharing that life-transforming good news with others. See, the good news of the passage is not just that you get joy when you drink the living water that Jesus offers. It's that you get just as much joy when you share that living water with others. There's life and joy in the midst of all of it. See, the saving work of Jesus in our lives is what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with Him. Instead, it's this chance for us to remember to remember his body and blood broken and shed for us so that you and I might have true life in drinking the living water he has to offer. See, we're remembering a communion is that the God of the universe didn't stay in his throne room, but he came near to seek and to save those who aren't even looking for him. And we remember in communion his body and blood were broken and shed so that you and I might have life. And so if you believe in Jesus to be the Messiah, if you see that he is the ultimate thirst quencher, and during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it in joy. Remember his body and blood broken and shed for you so that you might have life in him. And yet if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. You're still not sure he's the thing that really can satisfy that soul-level thirst in you. I just want you to know how welcome you are here, and I want you to keep investigating that. I want to encourage you to keep asking questions and to keep exploring and to keep asking Jesus that he might show you if he really is the thing that you're after. But while you're here, I'd encourage you, if that's where you're at, I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that is transformed by a heart-level belief in him, not just some head-level information about him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and River City is and we'd love to help you get to know him. As we close though, as we sing and as we worship God together by remembering the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and like this woman, your life is just a long line of failed attempts to quench that spiritual thirst that God's put in your heart. And on the surface, it looks like running after relationships or sexual intimacy or career opportunities or money or possessions or whatever it might be. But on the heart level, there's something underneath all that stuff that's just at the surface. And like it was for this woman 
Right? We don't know exactly what it was. Like, just men is not the answer. That's just the surface thing. We don't know if for her that was approval that she was desperately searching for. We don't know if it was comfort or security that she was after. We don't know. But for all of us on a heart level, right, the thing that is driving our idolatrous worship is a, is a longing for power and influence over other people. It's a longing for control of the variables in your life. It's a desire for comfort and, and just like pleasure and this escape from our situations. It's a longing for the approval of someone or something. There's a heart level longing for those things. We talk about them as source idols. Seeing like Jesus did for this woman, I'd encourage you, ask him to graciously put his finger on the thing in your heart you have been trying to quench your soul level thirst with that only he can actually do. I can guarantee you it will be uncomfortable. But living water is worth it. And there's life you are after that you can only find in Jesus. And sometimes you have to ask him to show you how thirsty you really are before you can hunger for what he has to give you. Ask him to show you what you are looking for other than him. To give you life. Ask him to see how he's the one that can give it to you. Others of you, you're here though, and you're like the rest of the villagers. Somebody's come telling you their story about Jesus, and then you need to believe him for yourself. Verse 42, they said to the woman, the crowds, the, her, her neighbors, right? We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Here's the truth. You can't live off the faith of others. It's insufficient, and it does not save. You actually have to drink the living water Jesus offers you yourself. You have to see him as the thing you're after. And you have to drink deeply of him. That's a choice only you can make. Others can't make it for you. Lastly, some of you are here and you're like the disciples. Your life is full of important, even necessary things. Your career, your job, parenting little kids, who knows what else there might be. Endless, important, even necessary things. But you are missing the joy of being a part of God's kingdom work and seeing your friends and family and neighbors and co-workers come to a saving faith in Jesus. And God's word this morning is this gracious invitation to you that you might look up from the work you are so focused on so that you might actually see and get to be a part of his work. There is more life in it than you know. It's what you're looking for. Don't miss it. Make space for it. Make time for it. Be intentional about looking up at Jesus' harvest fields in your life, in the lives of those around you. There is life in sharing the living water, not just in drinking it yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for this story. And thanks that even though the other gospel writers did not include it, God, you, you told it to us through John. Thank you for this beautiful picture, Jesus, that you are a God who pursues us in our sin, in our blindness, in our unawareness, God, in our rebellious, idolatrous worship. God, you come running after us. You crossed every imaginable barrier so that we might know you, Jesus. And so we pray that the glorious reality of who you are might sink deeply into our hearts. And we ask Jesus that you might help us 
to see how thirsty we really are for you and how all satisfying the living water you have to give really is. We need you to do it, Jesus. We can't do it ourselves. And so we pray, Jesus, help us to be satisfied by you and to find life and joy in sharing you with others. We pray. Amen.